Amen. And Merry Christmas Eve morning. We, uh, we gather every year at this time and we tell the same old story. The story of Jesus and his birth, the story of Jesus and his blood. It's a story of a Savior who uh, is accessible to all. In many ways, the story that we tell every year is, is for little people. It's for, for all of us. Uh, it's about a Savior who came low and who came near uh, for the likes of us, for people like us. We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Hear then the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we gather on this Christmas Eve morning. We gather on this Lord's Day morning. Because of Jesus, because of you, because your great love with which you loved the world and sent your only Son for the Lord Jesus who was willing to take on flesh and be one of us and among us, to be tempted in all ways like we are and yet live that life we failed to live so that we might live. Father, as we come this morning, would you speak afresh into our hearts the old story of a Savior who came low, that we may rise very high. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In America, we take Christmas very seriously. right? We're very serious about our Christmas celebration, if you haven't noticed. right? And because it started after Halloween, but before Thanksgiving, right? it all began, this celebration then of preparing for it for weeks and weeks, with all that we do and all that takes place, though, very often in those weeks, the true meaning of Christmas or the true significance of what we celebrate in that moment of time gets obscured and gets lost in the shuffle. It often seems like Christmas is more of a celebration of winter. You know, you go around and you see snowflakes and snowmen and sleds and, you know, these scenes. And I can't, sometimes it seems like we're celebrating winter or family, sometimes materialism. You know, it's a time when Santa comes to the mall, right? Where does he come? To the mall. Um, so we can go and tell him all the things we want. You know, there are the special TV shows, the ones I love and still watch, things like Frosty and Rudolph and the Grinch. But what do we learn about Christmas from these guys? What do we learn about Christmas from Frosty and Rudolph, right? With his, Frosty with his button nose and Rudolph with his nose so bright, you know, what, what do we learn from, about Christmas? I mean, they don't even really try, do they? 
I don't really have much to do with it at all. And the Grinch, at least, you know, and I love the Grinch. And at the end, you love that, you know, the redemptive story where at the end, the Grinch is, you know, his heart has changed and it, and it grew so many sizes bigger. And he realized, you know, the moral of the story was maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas means just a little bit more. A little bit than a store? A, l- a little bit, and what is that little bit? You know, so I, I was actually Googling this week, you know, what is the meaning of Christmas according to the Grinch, right? And there's, it's not really clear, but, you know, there are actually people who are writing about this, and so there's a blog talking about the meaning of Christmas. You know, and he took the Grinch, and he said, you know, we learned from the Grinch. He says, Christmas is a good feeling and a sense of community that lives in all the who's. It's a good feeling and a sense of community. It's when they all gather around in town and sing Kumbaya. And this is why we need Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? This is why he is the apex of the animated Christmas show, right? Because he also is wrestling with the meaning of Christmas and searching for it everywhere. And he, even from his own dog, he is frustrated with the commercialism that's going on. And so Linus explains to Charlie Brown and to everyone else what Christmas is all about. As he quotes from Hart, the next section of Luke that I didn't read, Linus picks up in verse 8 and quotes through verse 14 in the meaning of Christmas, that on this day a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. Christmas, the Christ Mass celebrates one of the most significant events in human history, and yet it is often so overshadowed with the glitter and the lights and the hubbub that surrounds it. And the story of a creator entering into his creation, invading the world, Colossians 2.9, in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of the deity dwelled in the, in the body of baby Jesus, so to speak, the, the unity of humanity and divinity in a person on a mission. We turn to these few verses, and this birth, this amazing thing, is reported in the simplest and some of the most matter-of-fact Language, as it tells the story, it places this event in the flow of history and in the history of ancient Rome and in the history of this one family as they participate in uh, all of this. And if you want to see anything really supernatural about the whole thing, you've got to go back to chapter 1 where the angels are appearing to Mary and announcing the birth and telling her that the power of God will overshadow her and cause her to be with child, that that God will create a child for himself to inhabit. Or in the next passage that Linus quotes and the angelic host shows to announce the birth of this one. But here in these seven verses, it's a pretty quiet telling how the Creator God slips into the world, gets wrapped in diapers, and gets laid in a feeding trough. We have a simple description of the birth. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration 
when Quirinius was the governor. It's a snapshot of the ancient world into which Jesus is born. We see Quirinius as governor, and Caesar Augustus is the emperor. We know about these guys. We know Caesar Augustus is the first Roman emperor. He's the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, and he's the first in one of the most powerful Roman Empire emperors to ever reign. We know that they had censuses regularly. They ordered them in the empire for the purposes of taxation, uh, for, you know, get money and get men for the army. They need to know what they have. And the decree goes out from Caesar. And it finds its fulfillment in the story of this family, right? It finds its fulfillment in this distant province of this great empire, this backwater piece of country over on the uh, other side of the Mediterranean, Nazareth of Galilee, a man named Joseph, man of royal blood, right? A man who is descended from the greatest king of Israel, the son of David. But all of that is obscured in history at this point. Even though he's of royal blood, we don't get the sense that Joseph is really much of anybody, right? He's a carpenter and uh, <clears throat> not, not a known person, not a celebrity. He's a man of royal blood, but a nobody. And he's engaged to be married to a young woman who's pregnant, who's great with child, even. And the census decree drives this couple onto the road. It drives this couple uh, into motion in the midst of, of this uh, to-do that's going on in the empire. They head to Bethlehem and, and probably join a caravan of hundreds of other people who are also traveling to be registered. And so they go to the city of David's birth, the city of David. It's not the city of David where he reigned, as Greg was telling us a couple of weeks ago, normally Jerusalem is the city of David, the seat of his power and his reign and his kingdom. But it's the city of David in the sense that it's the city where David was born. And so that is where you go to be registered, the place of birth. And so Joseph heads there. And Bethlehem, as you know, as we've done the candle and, 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 and the whole thing about the Bethlehem candle and at this time of year we pick up that Bethlehem had a long history and a place in the imagination of Israel because the prophets spoke of it some 700 years prior. We know from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, he says, You, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel whose origin is from old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, even to the ends of the earth. Greater than Israel, greater than just a king of Israel, great to the ends of the earth. And so the Jews believed for hundreds of years that this passage is speaking of the Messiah and the Savior and that he would be born in Bethlehem. And we know this when the wise men show up and they ask King Herod, where do we find this king? Well, Herod turns to the priests and the scribes and they say, Bethlehem, of course. And they quote this passage. Everybody knows the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. But how will the... Christ be born in Bethlehem when the family is settled in Nazareth. 
And the answer is the sovereignty of God. Right? The sovereignty of God over Caesar's heart. The sovereignty of God over history. The sovereignty of God over the details of everything. Because God is going to order history for his own purposes. In Proverbs 21.1, it tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. I love that verse. It's a verse you go back to, whether in your own country, in your own time, to know that the king's hand, the president's, the king's heart, the president's heart, the, the, the rulers all over the world, God has them in his hand, and he turns their heart as he will. He is sovereign, and he orders all things for the purposes of his own glory and the accomplishment of his plan and purposes. And so the government of this expansive and powerful Roman Empire is under the government of God. And its organizational decisions of its first and most powerful emperor are going to bring about the fulfillment of divine prophecy. That the Lord uses Caesar to set the whole world on the move at the right time, in the right place. And he does it for the sake of these two little people, of Joseph and Mary, right? The whole world is on the move in many ways to fulfill this prophecy. And these two folks are swept up in it, seemingly just part of something bigger than themselves. And they think, you know, Rome and what it's about, but it's even bigger than that. It is something bigger than themselves. And they're just two little people. And so many ways you may feel insignificant. I know a lot of times I do. When I tell people I'm from Hickson, they're like, huh? You know, I live in it. Like who, who, you know, in the backwaters or wherever it is, you know, as far as even Chattanooga goes, who, who are we out here in Hickson? Can anything good come from Hickson? You know, I, I don't know. But you know that God moves heaven and earth for his little ones. Right, that, it, that, that God is sovereignly organizing and orchestrating history. That all things work together for the good of those who love him. And who are called according to his purpose. And he's going to accomplish that purpose through great and small. Piper puts it this way. All the mammoth political forces and all the giant industrial complexes, without their even knowing it, are being guided by God, not for their own sake, but for the sake of God's little people. You and me. The people who aren't going to be in the history, I doubt I'm going to make a history book. I don't know, you know, I don't know what kind of, for people like us. And so we have this picture of Jesus' humble birth, and I think that this is related. Why? Why does it happen the way that it does? Why does this passage unfold and record what it does? With the ancient world to stir in verses 3 to 5, it says, all, all went to be registered, each one to his own town. And Joseph went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, house, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. And she is with child. And while they're there, She gives birth. The whole ancient world then is astir. I mean, and they thought of the Roman Empire as the whole world. 
I mean, often when you read in the Scripture and they talk about the whole world, they usually mean the Roman Empire, you know, the, in, within the bounds there. And so the, literally for them, the, their whole world is astir, and people are up and moving and crisscrossing. You know, people are going to Bethlehem to be, people are going from Bethlehem to Nazareth to get ready. You know, they're crossing on the roads and the places, literally crowds traveling everywhere to fulfill this census. And so every town is full of visitors. It's full of People from out of town, three to six days it would take them to go from Nazareth down to, to Bethlehem, depending on how fast they're moving and all those kind of things. A couple arrives in Bethlehem and it's time with a thousand others to get registered. But while they're there, Mary's time comes. Verse 6, it says, while they're there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So the town is teeming with people, you know, looking for a place to stay, people who don't know each other. You know, there's a lot of just strangers and they're trying to get food and they're trying to get a place to stay. They're trying to get the things that they need to, to live while they're there and to function. And the place is literally teeming Everybody's distant relatives are in town, so the house is full, you know, everybody's rooms are packed out. There's no place, it says, for them. The last phrase there, there was no place for them in the inn. Now, at this period of time, there aren't very many inns in the sense of you and I think of like a Motel 6, you know, or a Holiday Inn. There's not much like that. The, the, the culture is that you house travelers, right? The, the, the Israelites would house each other in their homes, in their guest rooms. And what it's telling us is that all the houses are full. There are no more guest rooms. There are no more empty rooms to be had in town. And the passage really doesn't tell us where Jesus is born, does it? Right? It says there's no room for them in the inns. And so she has her baby, and she wraps him in diapers and swaddling clothes, and she lays him in an animal's food trough. And so we extrapolate from there. He's put in this food trough, you know, a manger, so, uh, you know, he must be born in a barn. He must be born in a stable. And that's as good a guess as any, a stable, a barn. You know, sometimes they keep, well, anywhere they would keep animals. Sometimes the alcove, often in a courtyard or just even a covered portion of a courtyard or wherever it is, it could have been outside. But they were not in a room. And they were wherever the animals were. A couple alone. Doesn't seem like they have any friends it came, this is his, his, his ancient origin of his family, but it doesn't seem like they have any family or any family that can really take them in. It doesn't even seem like they have a midwife as she gives birth. Because in verse 7, it tells us that she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. You know, there's nobody there attending, you know, and then handing over. She's, she's engaged here. Is this couple by themselves having a baby in a barn? A picture of poverty, of isolation, of obscurity, of humility. The low circumstances under which this birth takes place. In many ways, it's a night like any other. The sounds of the crowded village, the world going about Caesar's business as this couple in a barn and God anonymously slips into the world. And he's laid into an animal's feeding trough. 
And as we think about this picture, and often hopefully we do get the contrast between the conditions of his birth and the contrast between the conditions and the glory of the one who is being born. And the contrast could not be greater. It cannot be exaggerated in terms of the distance between the two. There's no fanfare. There's no celebration. There's no welcoming party. There are no baby showers. You know, literally no one knows but whatever animals are in the vicinity. And ultimately, unless you count a band of smelly shepherds, you know, fresh from the fields. Uh, If you know living outside, I just go backpacking two or three days a year. And I know by the time living outside and sitting around a campfire, and by the time I get home, I'm pretty ripe. Right? I mean, it's only been like three days, but, you know, first thing she does is take your clothes off right here and get in the shower, you know, because, you know, so these guys show up. This is, this is the, uh, these are the ones that come. Even John the Baptist was born in a city, Jerusalem, right? The son of a priest, you know, well announced ahead of time, celebrated by family and all those who were around. But God chose... And he chose. God chose to be born sharing space with animals. In poverty, in obscurity, in humility. Right? Because if you think about it, God who can turn the heart of almighty Caesar and make him, you know, accomplish his purposes. I mean, surely he could have arranged a room, right? You know, that he could have arranged better accommodations, you know, or, you know, brought a different group of... uh, early visitors to come, you know, he could, but he goes and gets the shepherds. He announces it to them and says, go and check it out, right? He sends these smelly guys out of the field to go and and welcome the Savior. He chooses these conditions, conditions so low, you can, virtually no child could be born in lower circumstances. It's about as low as you can go. And Why? When God in his sovereignty brought them to Bethlehem, fulfilling his eternal plan, you know, Bethlehem foretold 700 years, centuries and centuries earlier, he's fulfilling his plan. Safe to say that it is sovereignty and his power that has orchestrated the conditions of Jesus' birth. And yet he's born so low. And I believe that the reason is simply this, that God wanted to remove every barrier and every excuse and to make Jesus as our Savior as accessible as possible to as many as possible. Right? He brought him low. He brought him to these kind of circumstances so that we would feel we would have a Savior who is accessible to us. God chose to identify with the lowliest, with the youngest, with the poorest, with the dirtiest. He came as low as possible to open the door as wide as possible. So that those who feel low, or those who feel distant, or those who feel young, or those who are poor, or those who are dirty physically or spiritually, would feel that they had a Savior that was for them. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, we read this. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. 
And that's what we see in this passage and what I've been trying to say. He made himself nothing. He not only took on the form of a human being, but he took on the very form of a servant. And he took on the very form of a child. Isolated and alone. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He was born without honor and without privileges. And he could have been different. Again, God who is sovereign, who orchestrates these things, he could have been born the son of the emperor. He could have been the heir to the Roman Empire. He could have been born the son of Herod. He could have been born the king of Israel. In the heir of the reigning king of the time, he could have been born the son of the high priest. He could have been the leader of the Jewish religion and power and lived in the, in the places of, of religious leadership and influence of the day. He could have been born the son of wealthy merchants and he could have been rich and influential and influenced the power centers of the day. But if he came into the world exalted and privileged in royalty, in riches, in position, then we the poor and the weak, might be tempted to think that he's not for me. That he's for those guys. What does he have to do with me? I mean, you, you and I feel that today. What, is, what do we have to do with the rich and the powerful, the famous and the influential? You know, we feel it. What, 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 does it, what do I have to do with Washington, you know, and Hollywood and Wall Street you know, I think of them, these are just these power centers, and there are people who are, in a sense, running the world, either through media influence or financial influence or political influence. But what does it have to do with me? I go and vote when I can, and that's about it. I don't get to vote on what movies they're making. These rich people who have a platform to speak to every issue, you know, and because they've been in a movie, we listen. The Savior slips into the world in poverty and humility. He comes low. He comes accessible. He comes easy to get to. You'll find him in a barn, right? You'll find him in a manger, in a food trough somewhere, you know, out, out you know. And you can get to him real easy. There won't be crowds. You know, you can get right in. He descended low to open the door so wide that he could be a savior of the world, the savior of the least and the lowest, a savior for you and for me, a savior who came all the way down so he could bring us all the way up. Right? And that is the miracle of Christmas, a savior for you and me. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, though he was in the very form of God, Though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He came low. He became poor so he could lift us and make us rich. Made himself nothing so we could be rich in salvation. So you and I would dare to believe that what he did, he did for me. That what he did, he did for the likes of you and me. 
however obscure we are, however humble our situation is, however unknown, however a nobody, however we may feel in those moments. He did not come for the stockbrokers and the power brokers, the popes and the priests and the politicians, or at least not just for them. Jesus says in Matthew 9.13, he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call those who think there's something in this world. I came to call those who know there's nothing in this world. Who know that they're sinners. Who know that they need a savior. Who know that they don't have it all together. Who know that they're not people of power and position. Who know that they don't have it all together before God. Those who think they have it all together before him are the ones who will never go and embrace this humble Savior. Born in squalor and obscurity on that Christmas morning, lived and died a man for us, lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, the life that you and I failed to live so that he could die the death that we deserve to die, dying on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin the least and the lowest of us. Your sin, my sin, in his own body on the cross so that the least of us would feel free and feel open to put our faith and our trust in him that what he did, he did for me. That he was born like that for me. That he lived like that for me. That he died that death for me. John 1.12, and whatever your excuse, and that's what I'm going after this morning, whatever your excuse that keeps you at a distance, you know, whatever it is in your mind and your heart, that barrier that maybe holds you back, Jesus went to great lengths to remove all such barriers, to come as close and as low to you as possible so that you would be without excuse, that he is there for you. If you will but put your trust in him. John 1.12 says, To all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, to all, to the least and the lowest, to anyone, wherever you are and whatever you have done, to all who would receive him, who would believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. He was made, born a child, so that you could become a child of God. You. You could become a child of God. He became poor so you could be rich. This Christmas, will you believe? And will you receive? And will you put your faith and trust in Him? And will you really celebrate Christmas by going to this accessible Savior? By coming to Him in in both worship and in your need, as you remember if you were here last week in terms of the one who is got a throne of grace and who is sympathetic and who has loved us to the uttermost that we might be saved to the uttermost. Will you go to him, trust him, and give yourself to him afresh? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not leave us as you found us. We thank you that while we were wallowing in the dirt, in the grime, not only of this world but of our own sin, that you came low, that you were willing to not only be one of us, 
but that you are willing to empty yourself and take the very form of a man, the form of a servant, humble even unto death for us. Father, help us to cut through the glitter. Help us to cut through all that distracts from the knowledge that this is Christmas. Behold, in Bethlehem a Savior has been born, and He is Christ the Lord, the Savior of us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.